Did um, anyone have any of the question sheets that I had handed out last week? Um, I had gotten some questions by email, and I got one by um, paper. So if there's anyone that has a question that they wanted to get to me before I can be put on the spot here, stump the professor. So, um, right. No prizes. <laughs> um, so let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us this day to worship you, and we pray that you would give us knowledge from your word. Don't let the biases or impressions of men get in the way of that, but we pray that you would give us strength and wisdom to apply and understand what you have to say to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had some good questions, um, not all of which I know the answers to. In fact, uh, maybe a minority I actually have answers to. So I'm going to pick the ones that I like <laughs> and, uh, and go with that. Um, and this is in no particular order. Um, I'm just going to go down some of these, some of this list, and then I've got a couple of things that I'd like to at least at least touch on before we wrap up this series that we've had on on Christian thinking about economics. Kind of an unusual topic for a Sunday school, I know, and and maybe it's not something that that we're accustomed to thinking about in a Christian frame of mind. But I think that as we apply God's word to all of life, um, we should be able to, to practice this. And, and my, my discipline is not unique in this. Any, any of your interests, um, we should be able to take God's word and apply them in some way. So one of the questions that I had... Um, and I'm kind of going from the ones I think are, I think are easier to deal with and then to the ones that are harder to deal with. Uh, but one of the questions I had was, how would you counsel a Christian businessman who runs a gas station near the coast during a hurricane evacuation? And if you recall, I had spent some time, I guess this was maybe three weeks ago, um, it was in the first couple of weeks of the of the series talking about um, prices and I said effectively there's nothing in scripture that tells us what a price should be uh, we're not told that someone should not be allowed to work unless they can earn fifteen dollars an hour we're not told the price of gasoline should be less than three dollars or four dollars or whatever we're not given that and yet we see a, a lot of people who would like to create a kind of moral principle of some kind that whatever the status quo or whatever the normal price is, that's what should be. Um, that if you're accustomed to paying two or three dollars a gallon for gasoline and then all of a sudden something happens and people start asking for seven dollars a gallon that that is not just unusual 
but wrong. And that's, I think that's a problem. I, I, I had spent some time on that earlier. Now, this question is a good one because it gets at something else that I might have neglected earlier. How would you cancel a Christian businessman who runs a gas station near the coast during a hurricane evacuation? And of course, that's going to mean a lot of demand for gasoline as people are traveling all of a sudden, unexpectedly. Now, economic principles indicate that if prices go up, that's going to result in the gasoline going to people who have the most desperate need for it. People who have longer to go, people who, um, you know, maybe they've got small kids in the car and it's going to be really difficult for them to run out of gas on the side of the road. Um, they really need the gasoline and they might be willing to pay $7 a gallon for it, whereas other people might be willing to pay only 3 So that would, in a kind of a practical sense, that would optimize the use of a scarce resource. As a caveat here, I don't think it would be a sin to raise the price, but if I were counseling a Christian businessman who ran a gas station on a hurricane evacuation route, I think I would ur urge caution and say, maybe don't raise your price. Maybe prefer to run out of gasoline. Because that's what would happen. I mean, you'd run out. Yeah, people would buy it, buy it, buy it, and then it'd be gone. You'd have no more to sell. Why would I say that? I mean, it seems to go against the economic principles that I uh, hold dear, but at the same time, it would result in animosity from the public because the public has a general view about this. They view this as wrong. They would view it as wrong if you raised your price to $7 a gallon. I don't think it is wrong, but that's how the public would see it. And so we bear the name of Christ. And for that reason, we have to consider the weaknesses of others, and the misunderstandings they may have. There may be another way to handle the situation, maybe limit purchases of gasoline to $5 a gallon, and that may not generate the same level of animosity. People wouldn't necessarily think that you're doing wrong. But I'm pulling here from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, second half of verse 12 says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Paul's talking about the right to uh, receive payment for um, ministry. Um, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then starting in verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win more Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So even if 
it is the most efficient thing to do to see a higher price. Even if it is not wrong to respond to changes in supply and demand, even if, in fact, it would generate more actual public good to raise the price so that people who just want gas for their lawnmower don't buy it that day, people who want uh, gas to uh, you know, run their generator so that they can keep their beer cold don't buy gas that day because it's $7 all of a sudden. Even if it, the, the result is a positive one in that the most desperate needs are the ones that are filled and the ones that are less are not, even if that's the case, to not acknowledge that kind of sense of public indignation, I think, could produce a problem that is more serious for the Christian. Don't do something that causes others to think less of our God. And that's got to be the overriding concern for a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that you respond to every crazy idea that people have. I mean, there are people that think that it's wrong to burn gasoline at all because you're pillaging the planet or something. And, you know, am I, am I causing uh, people to think less of, of my God because I choose to drive a gasoline-burning vehicle? I'm, you know, I'm not going to worry about that. So there's a matter of um, prudence in how far we go down that road of trying to avoid public disapproval. Uh, we are going to bring upon ourselves all manner of public disapproval by the nature of our faith. And we can't avoid that. But if there's something we can do that is, it's going to cost us a few dollars, we might chafe a little bit at having to do something differently that's because of someone else's misunderstanding. We do this anyway because we don't want others to look at us and say, well, if that's how a Christian behaves, I don't want to be a Christian. So that's my take on it. Um, I'm happy to talk more about any of this with, with you later if that's not really sufficient as an answer. But let me move on to here to some other, other things. I had another question here. Um, what is the utility to a nation's economy of taxation? This is like bait for me. I have to restrain myself. <laughs> right. Uh, I thought about how I would respond to this. I'm. Some of you may know I have I have leanings toward very small government, and so I hear taxation. I I, I think of all kinds of negative things, but I think the Bible does make clear that the civil magistrate has a role to play in administering justice, at the least. I mean, we can argue about other things, whether they should run fire departments and Amtrak and the Postal Service and 
all the other stuff, but at a minimum, government civil magistrate is described in, script, in scripture as a minister of justice and it's explicitly said, for this reason, you also pay taxes. So, what is the utility to a nation's economy of taxation? You might as well ask, what is the utility to a nation's economy of a justice system? And that's a very strong factor, important factor in determining how well a nation does economically. If you look at nations that do not have a rule of law that are subject to the whim of whatever the person in charge decides that day, those are not nations that you would want to live in. Um, their economies suffer. Their people suffer in other ways. So what is the utility of taxation? To the extent that the taxes are being used for biblical purposes, such as administering justice, courts, and so forth, judges, that is vital to a nation's economy. Um, more so than how much oil they have in the ground or how much gold is in their mines and how much, you know, what their literacy rate is or all of those things. Uh, third question, the Bible has what seems like communism in the early church, which I think we talked about last week, yet God's plan for mankind has an uncomfortable amount of natural selection in it. My discomfort is with the seeming lack of compassion in Darwinian evolution, which comes out as a distrust of competition. There seems to be a common consensus that our capitalism is in need of reform to compete economically. Can you lay out a sound scriptural basis by which capitalism might be able to continue to compete? Somehow by following God and understanding economics, there must be a better answer. <laughs> a lot of interesting things here um, in this question. First, I think it's important to distinguish between or differentiate between Darwinian biological evolution and marketplace survival of the fittest. These are two different things. There is a kind of evolutionary process at work in the marketplace. But some Christians look at this and conclude that it must be a problem that the most efficient businesses survive and the least efficient ones go bankrupt. Um, not so. I mean, a, a six-day creationist view is compatible with a view that the least efficient businesses will be weeded out over time. There's nothing wrong with bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is important. It effectively transfers resources from people who are managing them badly to people who will manage them better. So good stewardship, which we've been talking about off and on through the last several weeks, means that we make the most of the resources God has given us. That means less efficient processes are going to be rejected if we're doing our job. 
in favor of more efficient processes. So the ones that are less efficient, that don't satisfy human needs as well, or that do so, but do so at a very high cost, those are going to tend to disappear. You could call that evolutionary. That's not a problem. Just because we hear the word evolution doesn't necessarily mean, oh, well, you know, Orthodox Christian can't subscribe to that. Now, another very important caveat here, efficiency. What do we mean by that? Efficiency is dependent on the goals that we have. Efficiency just means we're taking the optimum route to the place we want to be. What is that place we want to be? What's the goal? Shouldn't our goals as Christians be different from the goals of the rest of the world? So what's the most efficient route to Memphis? I mean, depends on my goals, right? I mean, do I want to minimize the time it takes for me to get there? Am I trying to minimize my use of gasoline, which is not quite the same thing? Uh, does it depend on whether I want to see scenery along the way? If I care about scenery, maybe I'll go up to Asheville and Knoxville and go through the mountains and see the mountains. I like mountains. Um, what if one route is more safe than another? I mean, those are all considerations. What is most efficient is not something that you discover as much as it is something that you decide based on your goals. And so for a Christian, then, the ultimate goal can't be stashing dollars in the bank. Now, that's not a bad thing to have dollars in the bank. I was pleased to um, hear Andrew mention last Sunday that the church had established a kind of emergency fund for operating expenses. That's, that's good. That's that's helpful, especially in uncertain times. So take what is raw material, make it into something more valuable. Build God's kingdom. Don't scorn the making of physical things. Use the physical and mental abilities you have to satisfy the needs of others, including your own family and your own church. So we're not in a he who dies with the most toys wins kind of world or contest. That may be the rest of the world, but it shouldn't be us. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. There it is. The distillation of our goal or goals as, as Christians. Now, capitalism, which I'm a fan of, can be a means to that end that is not the end itself however. Good stewardship is about more than collecting dollars. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with collecting dollars. We see some, you know, look at the Old Testament patriarchs who were blessed by God materially. Um, if it's done without fraud, without theft, without otherwise hurting others, then do your business and do it well and do it efficiently don't mistake the means for the end. So as far as the, another part of that question was whether capitalism can successfully compete with communism, um, first of all, that's not really our main goal. 
capitalism wins, communism fails. I mean, I, I hope that happens, but I, that, that's not ultimately our goal. Is capitalism in need of reform to compete economically? I'd say yes, by making it more capitalistic. <laughs> uh, so what we call, and this is, this is a digression a bit from some things I think we need to get to here, but what we call capitalism in this country is often hindered by a thousand artificial constraints. It's tied down like Gulliver by a thousand regulatory Lilliputians. And if you want to make capitalism great again, leave it alone. I had another question on um, kibbutzim. Uh, someone asked about the, the Israeli communities that were established um, after World War II when a number of um, Eastern European Jews who had survived the Holocaust um, migrated to Israel, they set up the Israeli state after World War II. And some, not many, but some established what looks like successful Marxist communes in Israel. Israel is still a, um, quite a socialist state as a whole. Um, But it looks like kibbutzim tried to implement a rigorous form of communism on a small scale. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I, um, I do have a couple of readings. I'll throw an article at you for, for that. Um, but they, they took this to the extreme. The parents were separated from their children. It's kind of like Plato's idea of of a communal society. Uh, children would be raised by the group, not by their individual parents. You didn't own any your land, you didn't own your house, you didn't own, uh, all of this was collective property. First thing I would say here is that the kibbutzim in, enjoyed an advantage of having a lot of outside support. You can make a lot of things look good if you throw enough money at them. And the Israeli state did. They threw a lot of money at these communes, protected them from competition by imposing tariffs so if the commune grew grain. They were protected from foreign competing grain imports. But the kibbutzim eventually um, mutated. They changed. They became less and less and less communistic. They looked like they had a measure of success for a while. Um, it is fairly clear that the only communist ex experiments that have looked successful um, for even a brief period have been ones that are small scale. I didn't mention this earlier, but the, the pilgrims who, and the Puritans who came and established colonies in uh, Virginia and in Massachusetts came with certain rules imposed by the investors back in Britain. And those rules 
required, for example, that most of the fields would be owned by the group, not owned individually. If you, you would go out and work in the common fields, anything that was grown went into a common storehouse, and your household got food out of the storehouse according to its needs. Well before Marx. But it looks Marxist. And it failed spectacularly and disastrously with something like two-thirds of the few hundred inhabitants dying of starvation, exposure, disease, and other problems. And a new governor came over and said, what are you doing? You, you, they, he found people playing games in the streets, walking skeletons, he described them as, because why should they go work? They're burning their own calories for someone else's family. And you could say that that was selfish and inappropriate, but that's how people tend to think. Even, even people who had the kind of religious views that we would share in large part. He turned things around because he said, okay, no more common fields. You, this family gets this piece of land, that family gets that piece of land. No more, no more common storehouse, and uh, turn the whole thing around. Um, Small-scale experiments um, can be made to look good if they have enough money thrown at them or if they're protected from outside influences at the cost of other, other people. I mean, supposedly the... In the time of the Soviet Union, the subway system in Moscow was just fantastic. Chandeliers on the ceilings and so forth. Well, you know, again, throw enough money at something, you can make it look pretty good. Doesn't mean that it's a desirable way of doing things. I did, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise my speaker's prerogative here and talk about something nobody asked about, but which I wish somebody had asked about. Um, what about, uh, and I get this question in classes sometimes, so I, th I think it's something of general interest. Um, what about foreign child labor? When you go to Walmart and you buy something, shoes, soccer ball, do you, do you think, well, um, I've heard that maybe this was made in a factory on the other side of the Pacific Ocean by children being paid very little, working 14-hour days. Um, is this something that we should be concerned about? And, of course, a lot of Christians are, and quite understandably so. Uh, when you when you buy a pair of shoes, do you think about about that? And so we're sometimes kind of lured into these um, reactions to this. So I'm going to step on some toes here, almost literally. Tom's. What's the deal with Toms? What's the, what's the hook with those things? I 
Right. You buy a pair, they say they're going to send a pair over somewhere else, that um, developing country. Um, what do you do if you're a struggling shoemaker in that developing country? And you're, you're doing okay. You're making it. You're, you're making a living. You're supporting your family, making shoes. And one day, a container ship arrives and drops off a couple of containers of free shoes. There goes your business. There's a film produced by the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N, which is a broadly Christian um, group that publishes a journal called Markets and Morality. So there's, you know, if you want in-depth stuff on some of the things I'm talking about, that's a good source. And uh, they produced a film a number of years ago, which I managed to get shown at Wofford, um, called Poverty Incorporated. And it discusses the efforts that people in developing countries are making themselves to improve their lives and how misguided charity can ruin them. Boycotts can be devastating. You don't like the fact that your product was made by 14-year-old girls in a factory in Bangladesh. So what do you do? You think they should be in school. So what do you do? So the temptation is, well, well you know, I'm not going to buy anything that was made by 14-year-old girls in Bangladesh. Because that's just encouraging child labor. They should be in school. And this is an, an admirable impulse for us who are not just thinking about our own narrow consumer behavior. I understand this that we, we want to have a global mindset. As Christians, we want to see the well-being of people around the world of all ages and income levels. This is an old dilemma. One of the, one of the examples of how this can also go awry is uh, dates back to the 1990s. Child workers in Bangladesh were found to be producing clothing for Walmart. And a US senator proposed legislation banning imports from countries employing underage workers. What happened next? Well, the factories still want to sell stuff to Walmart, so if the only way they can do that is by not employing child labor, then they fire the child laborers. Okay, then what? What happens next? The children did not go back to school. They were never in school in the first place. Well, not at age 14, they weren't. Oxfam, which is a British charity, did a follow-up study about a year later and found that the newly unemployed child workers had ended up in other jobs. 
Now, the fact that they had chosen initially to work in the textile factory means that was their best opportunity. Take that away, and they go to the next best. Oxfam found that many of these children had wound up on the streets. A significant number were forced into prostitution. So let's be thoughtful about how we try to improve the lives of others. Refusing to buy something because we think that the person who made the thing is being exploited may result in something much worse. Uh, you know, we, I expect the parents of these children cared very much about them, would not send their children off to work in a factory if they could afford to send their children to school, but they couldn't. And so they, they were doing the best they knew how to do. Um, I had, a, this is a bit more complicated question here about the um, Old Testament law of Jubilee. I had a couple of questions about this from people, if I recall correctly. Um, and this was a, a, a law that set a particular year, every 50th year, for the freeing of slaves, indentured servants. Um, and it returned land in Palestine to the tribe that initially owned it. It was the division of the land as the people of Israel entered, entered the promised land and it was divided up into territories and it was of course possible for someone to sell the land maybe to someone from another family or another tribe and, and then over time that could result in one tribe's land um, in the hands of another tribe. It was, so this was a reset every 50th year. So in Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 28, we see this. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. And similar rules applied for those who had sold themselves into slavery or indentured servitude. Uh, you can find that in verses 47 through 55 of Leviticus 25. Now, for, I, I have not read a lot on Jubilee, so I had to turn to, as I 99% of the time do, turn to people who know more about this than I do. Uh, Cal Beisner has written some great stuff on this, and um, I've got a book I'm going to recommend to you um, by him that discusses this in detail, but he says, careful examination of the Jubilee year's regulations disproves claims that it required any redistribution or equalization of wealth. Because what's happened is 
some Christians have looked at this and said, oh, law of Jubilee, um, maybe today, you know, we're not looking at a particular land in, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, we're, but we can take the principle of this and say, well, this means we should forgive debts. And so people can borrow money and then it should be forgiven. Now, depends on who's writing about this to see whether they think that should be done every 50th year or if this is something that maybe the government can just say, we're gonna wipe clean debts um, for people who are in, in poverty. Uh, maybe some would say, well, this, this is the foundation of bankruptcy law. Um, Beisner disagrees. He says, the regulations did not cancel or forgive any debt, but ensured repayment and then the return of collateral. Also, the regulations notably said nothing of newly created wealth. If one farmer produced far more per acre than another or gained riches through industry or trade, the Jubilee regulations didn't require any redistribution of that wealth or any equality of outcome between him and his neighbors. It's not about making people equal. Um, I asked our pastor, because I don't, I don't have an extensive theological lab library, but he had a copy of a, of a commentary by Kyle and Delich, which says in, in that commentary that the Jubilee was not an automatic default on loans. So they say that this does not signify a remission of the debt, the relinquishing of all claim for payment, but simply lengthening the term, not pressing for payment. So, um, in other words, and, and Beisner follows this view, this was more of a postponement. So for a year, you're not going to ask anybody who owes you money to pay you anything. When the year's up, you can go back to your normally, you know, regularly scheduled repayment plan. But for a year, you want people to rest. You want the land to rest. You want the nation to rest. And so if you find yourself in debt, in order that you be allowed that same opportunity to rest, you don't have to make payments on loans for that year you rest. And the, it's, it's kind of hard for me to see how the land reshuffling could be applied um, today. To me, that's, that's more of a, um, uh, a redemptive point, a, a, a visual of a redemptive point, which is, it, this is me thinking, and that's highly likely to be wrong, but your inheritance is permanent. You might behave foolishly or disobediently, or you might squander your wealth. You might lose the blessings of your inheritance for a time. But you cannot lose what God has determined to give to you. And so when you look at the nation of Israel as a, as a, a particular time where there are these land borders established for that people for that time and there's that permanence built into that inheritance 
I think today we can draw something out of that in, in the permanence of our inheritance in Christ. That's how I would see it, not, not having um, a great deal of knowledge about it. Kyle and Delich go on to say that because Jehovah had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt to give them the land of Canaan where they were to live as his servants and serve him, in the year of Jubilee, the nation and land of Jehovah was uh, a word to celebrate a year of holy rest and refreshing before the Lord and in this celebration to receive foretaste of the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, which were to be brought to all men by one anointed within, with the spirit of the Lord, who would come to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to them that were bound, to proclaim to all that mourn a year of grace from the Lord. And they, there's, there's more there. Maybe a secondary lesson here, and I'm stretching this a bit, but maybe a secondary lesson here is that God works through families. We're not just isolated individuals who um, either are elect or not elect, who are believers or not believers, but God works through families. And this is given particular color and vividness in this in this specific inheritance given to families and groups of families at that time in that place so this has been so twisted by some in the in the modern church there was a uh, American Baptist Church statement, official statement on the environment, which I wish I had a month to ca- talk about how Christians can think of the environment. Um, it's kind of my specialty within economics is environmental economics. But they said that the Jubilee year was a year of land reform. It is a recognition that all land basically and ultimately belongs to God, true and that no person or group has the right to destroy it or use it unendingly for unjust personal or institutional gain. The message of the Jubilee year had nothing to do with the destruction of land or the use of it for personal or institutional gain. It's always wrong to use it unjustly for any reason. It was not land reform in the modern sense uh, and you sometimes see in, in nations that, are, that move toward Marxism, they say, all right, we're scrapping all the land titles and we're turning the land over to the people. I went to college with someone at Clemson who had basically fled from Zimbabwe after their family farm that they had owned for I don't know how long was confiscated by the Mugabe government and turned over to Mugabe's friends who promptly ruined the farm but she and her family had come here because there was nothing left for them there. That's land reform. And if you're not careful to distinguish it between the, 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 you know, trying to import Jubilee into this is a wicked misinterpretation of Scripture. It is hijacking Scripture. 
to justify theft. Stalin, the seminary student, stole land from the kulaks, sent them off to eastern Russia or eastern Soviet Union, and turned land over to uh, the, the workers who couldn't manage to produce anything, turns out, because you've sent the expertise off to the gulag. To, to try to, you know, and, and they don't come right out and say, the church statements on this, and I've read a handful of them, don't come right out and say, we like Marxism. They'll say, they'll, they'll try to bring in enough of the same language and encourage people to make that connection for themselves. Oh, land reform, Jubilee, land reform, land reform, Marxism, I like Marxism. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of how we, 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 can, we can look at, I, I'm running out of time, I've, as usual, got three hours left but, of, of notes, but um, I hope that you will feel free to um, contact me if you've got questions. I have a handout for you um, of some resources general resources. If you've got particular questions, I'll be happy to address those, but some, if you're interested in more reading, I've got about 20 copies of this, and I'll, I'll um, give you this after. Let's close with prayer. Can I, can oh. I Oh. Part of the, part of the uh, stimulus package that was passed earlier this year. How's a Christian to think about that? Um, take it. Use it for the best <laughs> use you can think of. Use it for, the, yeah. Um, think of it as plundering the Egyptians, if you like, but take it. <laughs> you qualify for it? Go for it. I mean, obviously you're not going to, um, well, maybe, I, I don't know what people think, but you're not going to lobby for these misguided stimulus packages, but if they're going to create the stimulus package and, and say, here, have some money, okay. That's That's the unemployment thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just thought I'd throw that out there. I think there's a, you know, accept it, use it for the Lord, and then do what you can to make sure it never happens again. Yeah. That's that's pretty much. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We pray that we would use it rightly and not misinterpret it. I pray that anything that I have said over the last few weeks that might have been um, a misinterpretation of your word would be quickly forgotten and that you would uh, cause us to retain that which is right and 
give us a hunger for more of your word and help us to think carefully about how it applies and whatever our vocation or occupation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.